At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... I made a charcoal mask. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. My imaginary friend's name was Pepto. His name was Jack Easter. It's Amy the Boy Gorilla. Her name was Charlie. Sometimes Charlie was a boy, sometimes Charlie was a girl, but it was always Charlie. And he looked like uh, Jack Tripper from Three's Company. By the age of seven, 65% of kids have had an imaginary companion. And even into adulthood, they remember those friends, like Pepto. Apparently, he looked like Casper the Friendly Ghost meets Mighty Mouse. But pink. Pepto even had an imaginary job. And I can still see it really vividly. This small red building that I knew in my heart is where Pepto worked. What did Pepto do there? I have no clue, Andrea. I want to know. (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I was a pretty lonely and introverted and creative and anxious kid, so watched a lot of cartoons and also I'm pretty sure that my parents helped my anxiety and my my bowels <laughs> with Pepto Bismol, so do the math, and I think that's how Pepto got his name and got his comforting presence <laughs> into my life. <laughs> you know, later in life I came out and I definitely didn't feel like I fit into any binary gender role. So it was, you know, it was, it was funny to me that it was Amy the Boy Gorilla. It seemed to make, it seemed to make sense. After my second daughter was born, Charlie came up less and less. And I happened to remember and I mentioned, hey, I haven't heard anything about Charlie in a while. What's she doing or what, what's, what's up with her? My daughter just uh, innocently told me a very disturbing story about what happened to Charlie. (laughs) Oh, my God. What happened to Charlie? Well, Charlie went into the woods and broke her neck. What? (laughs) This is like a really sweet three-and-a-half-year-old kid telling me this. It turns out that that same creative force kids use to bring their imaginary friends to life can also be used to kill them off. I was in the backyard and I was looking up in the sky and this helicopter was there and it was like the helicopter caught on fire and just kind of kind of slowly spiraled down out of the sky and there was smoke and it crashed and I could see it on the ground and I just knew that that um, Jack Easter didn't survive. <laughs> 
It's weird. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Josh's pink friend, Pepto, he didn't die so easy. He changed. It was the 1980s, and around that time, Josh's older siblings had made him watch Nightmare on Elm Street and Halloween. I hated going to the basement where we'd watch TV because I was sure that um, he moved downstairs. Pepto had stopped going to work at the brick building. He just hung out in the basement, waiting for Josh. Josh's childhood home was always pretty cold, so he usually had a blanket around his neck. And anytime someone asked him to get something from the basement, Josh would fly down the stairs on his tiptoes, blanket cape stretched out behind him, running from Pepto. But I was sure, <laughs> I was sure that Pepto, um, <laughs> I'm sorry, <laughs> was going to um, <laughs> come up to the stairs with a hatchet <laughs> and get me. <laughs> so, oh, oh my God. <laughs> Imaginary friend turned imaginary foe. Uh, I really do see my therapist next week. I wonder if she has any insights on this. That was Josh in Seattle. We also heard from Karen in Westchester, New York, Jasmine in Nevada City, California, and Laura in Gulva, North Dakota. Laura is a parent now, and her son doesn't have an imaginary friend per se. But he does have imaginary hired hands (laughs) um, who work for him. He has like a fake cell phone that he carries around and he'll like, they'll like call him or he'll have to call them and like make a plan for, we live on a, like a farm. And so they'll have to like take care of the cows or go work on a tractor or something. And so he's like, he'll be like, oh, wait a minute. I got to go call so-and-so his hired men. (laughs) This is The Longest Shortest Time. I'm Andrea Salenzi. Today on the show, our first of two episodes exploring the weird, fun, and often dark world of imaginary friends. Where do they come from? Why are their names cooler than all other names? Why did they have to die like that? And we're going to zoom in on two different moms as they reckon with the reality of what happens when invisible people or objects, sometimes entire families, move into your home. But first, to really understand the mind of a child inventing a friend, we called up an expert. Tracy Gleason is a professor of psychology at Wellesley College. I say imaginary companions because they are not all friends. Often, kids have a hierarchical relationship with their companions. It could be their baby or teacher. Really anything. I once heard about a boy who was very close friends with one of those tiny cans of tomato paste. (laughs) There's any on all manner of objects can become your good friend. It's, uh, It's just what children choose to use. Tracy researches relationships, both real and imagined, mostly in childhood. Many, many times I have been in the midst of an interview with a child and I, I get maybe halfway through the interview about their imaginary companion and they stop and they say, you know, he's not real. And they kind of they kind of whisper it a little bit or, you know, sort of say it a little bit aside as though, you know, they don't want to say it in a kind of regular voice in a way that would spoil 
the bubble that we've created of, of imagination. Or maybe they don't want to hurt his feelings, you know, by, by acknowledging that he's not real. And so, you know, so children will correct you. You know, they get a little worried that maybe you're kind of too into this and you need to be set straight. Yeah. Why am I in an office with a stranger right now being interrogated about my imaginary <laughs> friend right now? <laughs> right. Like, does she understand that this is pretend? Because it's not actually real. You know, and nobody's shown that so much interest in it before. I mean, you know, parents often show some at least passing interest, but having somebody really want to know everything there is to know about the companion is a little bit strange. You know, usually when people are asking you questions, about it's about real things in your life. Is there risk in someone like a, a researcher or the parent asking too many questions about a kid's imaginary companion? Can you spoil it by interrogating it too much? In my experience, children really love to talk about them. They love to be the expert on this topic because, you know, when you're three, you're not the expert on much of anything. So <laughs> having having a topic where you know more than anybody else, I think is is part of the fun. At what age do these friends usually show up for kids? Well, uh, they've been documented as young as two, two verging on three. And, you know, most of the time when we study them, the children are between about three and five, although there is definitely some evidence that older children, even adolescents, and honestly, I think some adults, have imaginary companions. It's just that the preschoolers are the ones who talk about them out loud. Children in middle childhood and adolescents might have imaginary companions, but maybe not talk about them as much. It's something that they kind of think about, but don't necessarily share with other people. Are there certain kids who are more likely to have an imaginary companion than others? Is there Are there trends between, like, introverted or extroverted, only children, lonely children? They are slightly more common in only children and firstborns. You also find them in children. They, they tend to be particularly sociable, so they really like social interaction. They, they're cooperative with other peers and adults. They seem to be a little less shy than other children. But they are also children who really love to pretend. Most children engage in some pretense, but they range a lot in the extent to which they enjoy and spend a lot of time in pretend play. And kids with imaginary companions seem to really love fantasy. And then when do they go away? Well, you know, that's a great question because, as I said, we, we have found that there are adolescents who have imaginary companions. And there's other things that that adults do that is that are similar to having an imaginary companion like like fiction writers will sometimes talk about their characters kind of coming to life. If you think about it, most of us have conversations in our heads with real others fairly frequently. A lot of people will, you know, if they let's say you have a job interview coming up, you might Imagine yourself sitting in the job interview across from the interviewer, and, and maybe you don't have a vivid image of what the interviewer looks like, but you might think about, what is this person going to ask me, and how am I going to respond, and, and you know what are they going to say, and what am I going to say? And you might actually even play out the whole conversation in your head to make sure that you have covered all the bases and thought about all the questions they could ask you. And that conversation in your head might kind of take on a life of its own, so you don't feel as though you are actively constructing every question. You might feel as though those questions are coming out of nowhere. You also often have conversations in your head with, the, you know, your close relationships. So you might, you know, people talk to their spouses in their head sometimes. Or, if you know, if you have a piece of news that you want to share that's maybe very positive or very negative, you might plan 
how you're going to present that news by thinking about what the person's reaction might be and imagining yourself saying the news and how the person would react. And, you know, when you know somebody very well, you can predict how they might respond and what they might say. And so you might you might actually run a little movie in your head as to how that would play out. Do things ever go wrong with these imaginary companions? One of our listeners told us about how his friend Pepto started chasing after him with a a hacksaw, I guess, or some kind of an axe oh when he started to get older and his older siblings were making him watch all these scary movies. You know, do you ever hear stories about the imaginary companions turning mean or bossy or threatening? Certainly. You know, the emotions are often quite real. There's an example I have of a little girl whose imaginary companion was named Taiwan Airline. She and Taiwan Airline were playing hide-and-seek one day, and she couldn't find the airline and got very frustrated and ran around the house yelling, where are you, where are you, and got really mad. And then she watched TV for a minute. I guess the TV was already on. And a few minutes later, she said, oh, there you are. Nice to see you, and and hugged the air. Uh, So clearly, Taiwan Airline was back. And to me, that's a perfect example of a situation in which she wanted to think about, like, being angry, having somebody not do what you want them to do. And then she was done. And so she stopped. It's it's kind of a little experiment in emotion regulation and in a very safe and non-threatening kind of atmosphere. Something else that we were surprised by as a team when we started to read our listener responses was that many of these stories end in a tragic death, right? Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> Uh, we heard about Charlie, who went into the woods and broke her neck. Oh, dear. Jack Easter, who died in a helicopter crash. It was very fiery, and all the bits crumbled to the ground. Mm-hmm. What is that? Well, to some extent, when you're done, you're done. And when children are finished with their imaginary companions, sometimes they just fade away, and the children don't talk about them anymore. But, you know, sometimes they want a very definitive ending. Having an imaginary companion is not in any way associated with pathology. If if you find a child who's got pathology who also has an imaginary companion, the pathology comes first. That 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 usually has a different source and it's already there. A child who creates an imaginary companion is not by definition a child who's got some sort of issue. More often than not, you know, the imaginary companion gets hit by a bus and the child is very matter of fact about it. You know, you talk to some parents who are like, and then he got hit by a bus and it was so terrible, but she didn't really seem to care. And, you know, the parent is clearly much more upset than the child is. And I think that's because when you kill off your imaginary companion, most of the time you're done. You, you're just, you're ready to do something else. Uh, and this isn't something that you want to play anymore. So you just stop. Sometimes when those imaginary friends go away, it can be way harder for the parent to say goodbye than for the kid who made up the imaginary friend in the first place. Up next, we have one of those stories for you. Stay with us. Say advertisement. Advertisement. Good job. At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. 
what we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. Your skin refuses to be defined by age. That's why Agency creates personalized anti-aging formulas that smooth fine lines, lighten dark spots, and improve the appearance of dark circles. Each formula is tailored to you and prescribed by a licensed dermatology provider. Formulas are customized with clinically proven ingredients like tretinoin, which is up to 20 times stronger than retinol. Get your first month free at withagency.com. That's W-I-T-H-A-G-E-N-C-Y.com. $4.95 shipping and handling subject to consultation. Subscription required. Cancel anytime. And we're back with more of our imaginary friends, Extravaganza. Meet Kate, who lives in Marion, Indiana. I don't sound like I'm from Marion, Indiana, because I'm actually Australian, and we recently moved here a couple of years ago, because my husband is from Marion, Indiana. Kate's family moved to the States when their son, Sammy, was three years old, and their baby, Theo, was about nine months old. So we moved here in January. It was like, you know, effing freezing. And they didn't know anyone in this new small town except her in-laws. So they spent a lot of time that winter just hanging out at home. Kate and Sammy would be sitting around, playing and talking. And all of a sudden, he just started mentioning, you know, his friend Helen and, oh, my friend Helen, blah, blah, blah. I was like, oh, okay, cool. Kate didn't know any Helens. And then one day, she got the scoop. Helen's a five-year-old boy from South Africa. He flew on a plane to come and visit us and have a sleepover because he's actually Sammy's cousin. And he flew over, came to visit, ended up staying staying with us and his parents who are also named Helen his mom Helen and his dad Helen and he had a baby brother who was the same age as Sammy's little brother so his name was Helen too naturally yes naturally <laughs> and his his mom was about to have another baby and in real life so was Kate she was pregnant with her third child yeah kind of like me and I we found out we were I was having a baby girl who we called Mary Wildflower and turned out Helen's little baby sister was called Daisy Wildflower. And we were shocked. We were like, What? I thought she was gonna be a Helen. <laughs> so if you're keeping track. So it was Helen, 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 and Daisy Wildflower. And they were a family that they all lived in South Africa, except for Helen, the five-year-old. And that's because Helen was staying in Marion, Indiana, on an extended sleepover with Sammy. And soon, there was another invisible cousin who joined him. A less important figure in the story, Helen's cousin, Colin, who was visiting from China. They were almost like a, you know, like a band of brothers kind of thing. Sammy loved to tell all sorts of people about his cousins, his teachers, other parents, random people in cafes. It would be like, oh, my, my cousin Helen knows that. And everyone would be like, oh, okay, great. <laughs> and then I would have to kind of 
especially his preschool teacher, I'd have to pull her aside and be like, oh, by the way, Helen is, um, it's a, he, he's, he's a boy and he's kind of his imaginary friend. And his preschool teacher was awesome. She's like, oh, that's great. That's cool. If Sammy overheard Kate, he'd jump in. And be like, he's not my imaginary cousin. He's my invisible cousin. <laughs> was that hard on you that the Helens and Collins couldn't be just an at-home conversation? It was something that always had to be out and about. Yeah. Oh, I'm naturally a very introverted person and I don't like you know I don't like having attention brought to me especially in public places and and Sammy you know he is just completely opposite to me complete extrovert and oh I would just I would just I could feel myself just turn bright red in these public settings and not like it wasn't even just with sort of people we knew. It was just, you know, you'd be at Walmart or at just the supermarket buying your groceries and, you know, random people. Would, and he would just tell anyone and everyone. And I just, I just wanted to die. <laughs> it's just so embarrassing. Not because I'm embarrassed about him. I'm just like, then I'd have to explain to people you know, the same thing. Helen is actually a boy. It's not a middle-aged woman. Um, you know, I would just, yeah, it, I, didn't, I didn't cope very well. <laughs> About a year went by, and Helen, 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 Daisy Wildflower, and Colin had really become part of this family's new normal. But then things ramped up when they were planning Sammy's birthday party. So when he turned four, um, sorry, one second. Yeah, Theo, I'm just, I'm just on the phone. Do you need help? That's Theo in the background, Sammy's little brother. You need to do it, too. I'm so sorry. <laughs> <laughs> While Kate helps young Theo with some important business, let me fill you in. So for Sammy's fourth birthday party, they still didn't have many friends in the area. It was going to be mostly family, grown-ups. So they made an invite for Helen, who is now back in South Africa, and they stuck it in the mailbox. And Sammy got really excited. So excited that Kate and her husband now worried that they'd convince Sammy that Helen was actually real, like a flesh-and-blood five-year-old boy who could show up at the party. They didn't know what to do. Like, do we hire a kid actor to pretend to be Helen? Or tell Sammy that Helen's flight was delayed? Nothing felt right. But Kate's husband, who's an art teacher, came home one afternoon and told her it was going to be fine. He had a plan. Just trust me kind of thing. I was like, okay, cool. So the party happens and Sammy keeps asking. Where's Helen? Why isn't Helen here? How come Helen didn't come? And Kate's thinking, yeah, wasn't there supposed to be a plan? So the following day, my husband walks him down to the letterbox. And, they, you know, there's an envelope in there for Sammy. What? what's this? He's like intrigued and excited and he opens it up and there's a card and it's from Helen. And I was like, what? There's a card from Helen? (laughs) What does it say? So Sammy can't read. He's four. He hands it over to his dad and he's like, 
Dear Sammy, I'm sorry I couldn't make it to your birthday party. I was struck by lightning. (laughs) (laughs) I, like, I literally fell on the floor laughing. I was just not expecting (laughs) such an amazing card. Helen luckily survived being struck by lightning, probably because he's invisible, and he said he'd be back for another sleepover soon. So it turns out that my husband got one of his art students to make up this card, draw it and write in it. He didn't really give him that much direction. It was just like, oh, he got struck by lightning. And Sammy was like, oh, okay. That's okay. You know, like just totally just moved on from it. Not a big deal. It was really amazing. (laughs) Then Christmas came around and Sammy started picking out some of his favorite toys to give to Helen. He even gave up his prized possession, his Woody doll from Toy Story. And Kate's husband realized that, wait, after the whole birthday party struck by lightning thing, they'd created a situation where Sammy had real expectations for Helen. And if Sammy was going to give gifts to Helen, Helen really should be a good imaginary cousin and give something to Sammy. He comes back from the grocery store and he's like, I've got this great idea. Let's give this to Sammy from Helen. And it's like, a, it's a, it's a coconut, like an actual coconut. And I'm like, I don't think they grow in South Africa. And my husband's like, mm, doesn't matter. <laughs> so we wrap it up. It's under the Christmas tree. He opens it up on Christmas morning and he is so pumped. I can't believe Helen sent me a coconut. This is the best present ever. He's just so excited. Kate was like, wow. My husband really gets this Helen thing. But maybe she shouldn't have been so surprised because it turns out her husband also used to have a whole imaginary family. He told Kate about them for the first time back when they were dating. And I just was like, that's weird. It's a little weird. My husband's invisible family that he had was a family of keys. (laughs) (laughs) Like house keys? Like house keys. (laughs) Back then, she was making fun of him. But now, 15 years later, her own son's imaginary cousins had grown on Kate. She'd gotten sucked into the fun stuff, like seeing her husband write fake cards and making a coconut the best gift in the world. I need to tell you this one story. We were driving home one time, and we live across the road from this very small airport like it's just like a private type airport and we were driving home and I thought this is a pretty big deal and he's like oh Helen and Colin are actually just gonna hop on a plane now they're gonna go back home and I was like whoa this is you know in my head like this is a big deal maybe with this is it like we're gonna say goodbye to them if they're gonna get on this plane and he's like, yeah, the plane's leaving soon, Mum. We need to, you know, like we need to kind of drop them off at the airport. And it's just across the road from our house. And so I, I turned in and drove down and into the parking lot. And, um, and I was like, okay, well, here we are, Sammy. Like, is all their bags in the back? Do we need to help them get out? You know, what's going on? Are, are we saying goodbye to them? 
And he was like, yeah, they're taking us there, you know, like really just going for it. And in my head, I'm like, I'm, I'm not ready for this. <laughs> I'm not ready to say goodbye to Helen. But maybe he was. Why aren't you ready? I, I just wasn't ready because he just, he just kind of threw it out there. Like he hadn't even warned me with, you know, like they're flying out next week. I hadn't prepared like a going away party. I felt like this was a really big deal, not only for Sammy, but for us as a family because he was, he's been such a, you know, solid presence in our household since we moved here. And I thought, well, if he's for real, I'm going to make this real and see what happens. <sighs> so I parked the car and, you know, I unbuckled my seatbelt and I was like, well, do I need to get the bags? And he kind of sat there and I could see his little brain ticking over and he's like, uh, you know what, mommy, I just, I think, I think he just wants to have one more sleepover. And I was like, ah, oh. <laughs> like a huge sigh of relief. <laughs> Like, why so much relief for me? I don't know. Like, and I was like, oh, that's fine. They can definitely have one more sleepover. Because you know what? The airport's across the road. We can do this anytime. And he was like, okay, all right. Yeah, that's fine. Since our interview, Sammy's asked his mom to drive him back to the airport again one last time. He has all these new friends in preschool now. While he ran to the house to get Helen and Colin their imaginary bags, Kate told us she cried in the car. Kate had her baby marry Wildflower and decided to name her Helen. Just kidding. There's only one Helen. Well, technically four Helens, but you guys know what I mean. In a bit, what imaginary companions say about your family culture? And what to do if those imaginary friends aren't even people, just very special things that you love to eat. <laughs> At Best Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain or that you won't get a sunburn or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western with over 4,200 hotels worldwide. <laughs> okay, we're back with more imaginary friends and a past guest on the show, Amy Choi. She's the co founder and editorial director of the project. Mashup Americans, along with Rebecca Lair. You learned about them on our episode number 124. They help families with mashed up cultures figure out how they fit in with each other and the world around them. Like Amy, who's Korean American, married to a Colombian Mexican American. Their son, Alejandro, is four and a half. Almost five. He would want you to know that. His birthday's at the end of May. And his friend showed up about three years ago. It was real young. Like, I feel like as soon as he could say the words, he had imaginary friends, probably two and a half to three. And it lasted about a year of, like, we brought them everywhere. And we talked to them and we had to, like, buckle their seatbelts and stuff. 
if we went on a road trip. (laughs) At first, it was hard to even tell that Alejandro was talking about an imaginary friend. I was pregnant with Serafina, and it was summer, and it was really, really hot. And literally, on the days that I was home with him, we would get on the train because it was air-conditioned, and we would just, like, ride the rails around the city. So he would talk about the lines. Like, he knew where everything went. He had favorite stations where he would like to transfer or, like, favorite stations where he would like to hang out and watch all the different trains come in. And so then he started talking about the subway all the time, and we thought he was just kind of always talking about the subway. And then we realized that he was talking about his friend subway because then he would, like, talk to subway on his way home from the subway. Or be like, oh, well, Subway stayed outside today. He decided he wanted to, like, sleep outside. What did you come to learn about Subway? Is Subway another kid? (laughs) I really don't know. Subway's age seemed to change. So, like, Subway was big enough that Subway could take the Subway by himself. He could take adventures by himself. He didn't like to travel on planes. So, like, sometimes we went... I can't remember where we were going. We were taking a long flight, maybe to California or to Colorado or something. And Subway came with us in the car to the airport. But then we had to like stop the car, open the door, close it and say goodbye to Subway on the sidewalk because Subway didn't want to go on the plane. He was always eye level. So he wasn't big, but he would be like in a fence or he would be like sometimes Subway. He could also put Subway in his pocket. Mm. So I think Subway, um, he fit whatever needs that he had. (laughs) Or she. Subway usually showed up when Alejandro was bored or stuck waiting on his parents. The game as a parent, I feel like, is like rush, 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 and then suddenly there's stasis and your kids are bored and then like you're rushing around. So it would be like, we'd like get his shoes on, get his bag packed, get him all ready to go. And then we'd realize that like we needed five minutes to get ready to go. So that was always when Subway appeared. He'd like be sitting in the stairwell of our apartment and talking to Subway, waiting for us. I think they talked about us. Being like, what? I'm still sitting here. Subway, what are you doing today? (laughs) Subway, what did you have for dinner? (laughs) Um, I always thought it was funny when he would talk to Subway about food, but then his other two friends were both foods. There were three friends total. They were Subway, milk, and miso soup and rice. (laughs) Miso soup and rice, that's all one friend. It was always miso soup and rice. It was never miso soup and rice were coming to play. It was miso soup and rice. Oh my God, now that I say this all out loud, I sound banana. This is crazy sounding. (laughs) And maybe you guessed this, but this was a time in Alejandro's life where he was mostly eating miso soup and rice, drinking milk, riding the subway. His friends represented the things that were near and dear to him. And then his little sister was born. Yeah, like kind of when she became less of a blob and more of a person, he ditched his imaginary friends. But they're not like neck broken gone. At almost five, his friends are still with us. I asked him about subway and he was like, oh yeah, he's okay. Do you have a sense that he might have outgrown his need for them? Maybe. I mean, I think honestly, like, you know, listen, we live like in a tiny Brooklyn apartment. He has a little sister who is up in his junk all the time. I I get the sense that when he's actually, he's so rarely alone now. Also because he's in school longer and, and like his social interactions with his 
with actual kids is like a lot more involved that when he's solo or quiet, like he actually just likes to be that way. Because I think his imaginary friends were like really part of his his life. And so then they required him to like participate. And now, now it's like, you know, like as a grown person, I'm like when I'm actually alone and not doing anything, I just want to like lay flat on the ground and stare at the wall. I'm like, this is such a blessing. And I, I have a feeling the way that he was like, oh, yeah, he's cool. Subway's fine. But he, like, that he's kind of keeping Subway in his back pocket. I could imagine him coming back as, like, a, like a security blanket. So, so much of your Mashup Americans project is looking at that kind of hyphen America, right? Um, looking at, you know, the complexities of culture. And when we went to our audience with this question— the pool of respondents were wider than most of our audience normally is at the longest, shortest time in a way that Hillary and I have both found very surprising. Oh, wow. Yeah. And it made me think more about this question of imaginary friends. And I kind of lightly Googled, you know, imaginary friends, is it a white thing? (laughs) (laughs) I found a Kevin Hart sketch where he says, (laughs) you're a kid, everybody had imaginary friends. You know what? I don't think parents should allow their kids to have imaginary friends. I don't. Because that just means that your child is a step closer to being crazy. (laughs) It does. That's all it means. It means your child is one step closer to losing his damn mind. Honestly, this is where I think black people and white people, this is where I think we're different at. I do. I think we're all really different here. Because white people, when their kids have imaginary friends, they they go along with it, you know. They think he's special. (laughs) He's imaginative. He's going to be somebody, yeah. (laughs) Black people is not the thing. It's not the thing. We think he's stupid. That's all. It's no game at all. We think he's dumb. He's making a statement about the freedoms that marginalized kids or kids who are demographic minorities in America, what they're allowed to do and what kids who are privileged by a benefit of race get to do. Kevin Hart is a comedian. And of course, he's not speaking for all Black people. It's not a studied fact that African-Americans in our country are less likely to have imaginary friends. But Amy had some insight into how imaginary friends might be correlated with privilege. I think there was a a tweet that I happened to see by the author Celeste Ng last night. She wrote uh, Little Fires Everywhere, and she was saying how, you know, when she was—she's Asian-American, and when she was traveling abroad— I think it was in Europe that Europeans were asking her to to define what Americans meant when they said privilege because they're not just talking about wealth, right? Like like what what is white privilege? What is privilege in America? And she was saying, you know, privilege is one way to look at privilege is to see who gets to make mistakes. And there's a way of applying that to so many different levels like who gets to play without any repercussions? If you are part of a marginalized culture that is fighting for recognition or visibility or a recognition of your humanity in all these other ways, it's hard to be like, ah, yeah, I'm going to cultivate my kid doing something that like on the surface is pretty Looney Tunes, like talking to invisible people and objects 
Those are things that are natural outputs of a child's imagination. And also when you're constantly worried about how your kid is representing you and your culture in mainstream America, that's probably not a thing that you, you're as open to. When I talked to Tracy Gleason about this, our imaginary companions expert, she explained that imaginary friends have been studied in dozens of countries and written about in Chinese, Japanese, Hebrew, Portuguese. This isn't about ethnicity, but about the conditions in your community that make the imaginary companions more or less likely. One factor is a tolerance for fantasy. An extreme example of this is one study where a family of fundamentalist Christians interpreted their child's behavior as indicative of possession, brought on by the devil. So, of course, it's not just a white thing. It's not even just a kid thing. It's something you get to do when you have the privilege of spending time in your own imaginary world. Well, my Asian Latinx son has (laughs) his three friends, one of whom is extremely Asian, miso soup and rice, um, and he hasn't yet murdered them. So not saying that murdering your imaginary friends is bad. You do whatever you need to do in your fantasy life. But Wait, but are you sure that you know the cultural identity of miso soup and rice? Like, are you? We no, don't, I don't. Yeah. That's that's so fair. I just, I, just his name, her name, miso soup and rice's name, their name. <laughs> I totally racially boxed miso soup and rice into a corner. I didn't mean to. <laughs> Next week on The Longest Shortest Time, an exclusive interview with one very special imaginary friend. Hang on. Hello? Oh, no, Aggie wants to, to get on. Can she hear me? Yes, she can hear you, Aggie. Who is that? Hi, this is Aggie. <laughs> she really wants to be a star. Tune in for this exclusive interview in part two of our Imaginary Friend series. And we want to hear about your imaginary companion. What was their name? And more importantly, how did they die? You can tell us at longestshortesttime.com in the comments for this episode. That's episode number 160. This show is produced by me, Andrea Salenzi, with Kristen Clark and Jackie Sajiko. Our show's creator and executive producer is Hillary Frank. Our engineers are Pete Karam and Jared O'Connell. Special thanks this week to Jarlith Baldrin and Mike Bratton for your recording help. Our music is performed by hotmoms.gov. We get editorial support from Peter Clowney, Antonia Acatunde, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Rekha Murthy, and Julia Wang. Subscribe to The Longest Shortest Time on Stitcher or wherever you're listening right now. And as always, here at The Longest Shortest Time, We want to hear about what's been challenging, weird, funny, or surprising about your life as a parent. Right now, we're interested in stories about being a surrogate. What's really involved? Go to longestshortesttime.com, hit the participate tab, and submit your story. Hi, everyone. Katie Couric here. I want to tell you about a project of mine called America Inside Out. It's a new documentary series that I made with National Geographic. Since last summer, I've been traveling all over the country and sitting down with people to talk about some of the most contentious, confusing topics in American culture today. And I'm continuing these conversations on my podcast, 
Brian Goldsmith, my co-host, and I have been diving into topics like the debate over political correctness, the toxic boys club culture in Silicon Valley, and what it's like to be a Muslim in America at this moment in time when Islamophobia is alive and well. So what can I say? I like thorny topics. I like to untangle complicated issues. To hear more, just search Katie Couric on Stitcher or wherever you listen. Western, we can't promise you the perfect family beach vacation. We can't promise that it won't rain, or that you won't get a sunburn, or that your family won't endearingly call you Lobster Mom for weeks afterward. What we can promise is a warm welcome and a comfortable room amidst all the joyful chaos. Lobster Mom. Life's a trip. Make the most of it at Best Western, with over 4,200 hotels worldwide.